I've always had a great deal of respect for the dead, especially during Dia de los Muertos, I guess largely due to my upbringing. Growing up in a Mexican household, I was never disturbed or uncomfortable when visiting a cemetery, strange as that might sound. I have fond memories of visiting past family members and my family telling stories of when they were alive. I guess that's why what happened on Dia de los Muertos when I was about 15 didn't faze me as much as I thought it would. My parents took me and my sister to visit our grandmother for the holiday, and as usual the cemetery was lively with people doing the same. The graves were all cleaned and polished, families were gathered around leaving decorations and offerings to the dearly departed. As I looked around, I saw that everything was bright, colorful, and festive. That's when I noticed it. A small grave with absolutely nothing on it. No offerings, no decoration, not even so much as a single flower. I was surprised at just how empty-looking this grave was. When compared to the rest of the cemetery, it stuck out like a sore thumb. I turned to my sister and said, that grave is so lonely, it's really upsetting, especially for today. She turned to where I was looking and said, What grave are you talking about? They're festive looking. I was surprised, since not only was this grave not obscured by anything, but it was in the same row of graves as our grandmother's, just in the opposite direction. I knew the grave was small, but it was still fairly noticeable, at least to me. I pointed at the plot and said, Right there, towards the driveway, you can't miss it. My sister finally saw it after a couple of minutes, saying that the person must not have any family members left, or at least not ones living here. After several minutes, I grew more and more upset. For some reason, I just couldn't get this lonesome grave out of my mind, until finally I'd had enough. I got a flower from one of the bouquets my mother brought for my grandmother and walked towards the grave. My sister, looking confused, asked me where I was going, and I told her I was going to leave a flower on the headstone of that grave. My sister, even more confused than before, said, What? Why? You don't even know who they are. I simply replied, Because this is a very special day, and everyone here should be a part of it. As I approached the plot, my heart sank, and I found myself trying to hold back tears. Never have I seen such an unkempt headstone. It was covered in dirt and grime as if no one had come to see this person in a long time. I couldn't make out the person's name or the photo. I looked around to see if there was something I could use to clean it, and right behind me was a sort of stand with paper towels, and beside it a faucet. I thought to myself, well, that's awfully convenient, and started cleaning. As I wiped away the dirt, I saw that a woman was buried there. Unfortunately, I couldn't pronounce her name since it was very exotic. I started talking as I cleaned since I felt like I should say something at this woman's grave. Hello, ma'am, I said. I know we don't know each other, but I couldn't help but notice your grave looked like it could use a good cleaning. I notice you have a very interesting name. I'm sorry I can't pronounce it, but hey, that's something we might have in common since people have trouble pronouncing my name. I don't know if you know this, but today's a special day, a day we take a moment to celebrate those who've passed on. I know we don't know each other, but I just felt you deserve to be part of this as much as everyone else here. As I finished cleaning the headstone, I laid down the flower I brought as an offering. The moment I did, I was in shock, not out of fear, but out of surprise. For there was something on her headstone that I hadn't noticed while I was cleaning, and it was of great importance to me. Then immediately after the initial shock, I got a headache 
not a serious one, but painful nonetheless. It was a memory that forced its way into my mind of when I was a little boy, probably eight years old at the time, and it was during Dia de los Muertos. I was at my grandmother's house, and my mother had come to take me home. I asked my mother why we celebrate Dia de los Muertos, and she replied by saying, so that the spirits don't feel sad. I was confused by this and said, wouldn't the spirits be more sad if they had to remember the day they died? My grandmother, who was in the room at the time, told me, Dia de los Muertos is like a birthday party. Wouldn't you be sad if no one celebrated your birthday? I told her that I would, but I still didn't understand the answer. My grandmother smiled and said, not now, but you will one day when you're older. I smiled as I looked down at the grave and said, you know what, ma'am? I guess we do kind of know each other. I walked back towards my family after that. I may not know who that woman was, but one thing about her I will never forget. As I laid down the flower I brought over, I saw that the date of her death read March 19th, 1991, the date I was born. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum, and this... It's Ghoul Intentions. Ooh. Ooh. I was a little too giddy for spooky, but... You could be giddy and spooky. Maybe they are giddy. not mutually exclusive categories of being. quite highly caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs> we, so we were going to record the episode yesterday. Right. But, um... I needed a little extra time, and also I had the worst allergy attack I've had all year, probably. Oh my God. I sneezed 47,000 times. <laughs> it was terrible, and I had to take a Benadryl. You sneezed so much, you lost weight. Like, I that's did. how bad. I did. I hope. I'd like to think so. Um, Your abs are sore now. They are sore, though. But they were sore before, of course. That's when I have allergy attack. Man, I sneezed and sneezed and sneezed. So there's a chance I've been sneezing today. And you have today. the cutest sneeze. Like, Thanks. it's so adorable. I know. I know. I don't mean to make light of your suffering, but right. you have an adorable sneeze. Thank it's like, you. It's you. It's like a little um, cartoon furry animal sneeze. I think it's a subconscious rejection of my mother's sneezes. How does your mother sneeze? Very loudly. Mine does too. It's like, an aggr- it's like she's trying to take out the next room with that sneeze. My mother... Uh, Every time, every time she has sneezed, and I've heard it, I, my first thought is she's just been stabbed. Yes. Um, because it's, I think I've talked about this before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but it's worth letting our listeners know how long I have suffered under the yoke of my mother's <laughs> sneezing. Um, she's Same. terrifying. Yeah. She, every sneeze has kind of two parts. There's the ah uh and the chew, right? I mean, there's like... It, in some form or fashion, though, that, there that, should be. that basic, that basic form, that basic formula is observed universally by all yes. sneezes and all walks of life. <laughs> Not so with my mother. My mother just does the ah. There's never been a chew to her sneezes, and her ah sounds like a fucking bloody murder scream. She will <laughs> literally be like, ah! and that's it. That's all you get. And I'm like, fuck, it gives me a heart attack every my time. My mom just does the chew. Every time. She's just more like, yeah! <laughs> it's like, Fuck, mom. What are you doing? Wait, so your mom just does the chew and my mom does the ah. Maybe we should get them together. They They... break the sound barrier. (laughs) Together, it's like a super transformer I know that's not how the sound barrier works, but the sound barrier would run away from them. Yeah, together. 
<laughs> together it's they so rip loud. open a hole in space time. Yes, we don't want that. Oh my god. What is today, this title? For oh, the title episode? for today's episode. I thought it might, given that who, what we were talking about, that we would. Uh, uh, the title is Infinity Made Imaginable. Ooh. Uh, Infinity Made Imaginable. That's going to be my new uh, warm up vocal warm-up. Um, it comes from the poet Samuel Taylor Coolridge, who said famously, the principle of Gothic architecture is infinity made imaginable. So you might be able to guess from that that but the perhaps... colleges we're talking about today have rather imposing Gothic architecture, which mm -hmm. just, it's like a, like ghosts are just, they seem to be attracted to that kind of architecture. Ghosts have very Well, and people have a tendency taste. to be creeped out by that kind of architecture mm -hmm. as well. Um, Isn't that interesting to think about? Because that kind of architecture came about as like a way to, it's supposed to inspire awe, awe and make, oh, this is beautiful, this is gorgeous. And now it makes people go, shit's haunted. Yeah, right. Uh, look at that shit. It's haunted. And you're probably right. It probably yeah. is. Oh, before uh, we continue though, we should say thank you to the submission. Oh, yes. Which was. Yes. Uh, thank you to. Okay. Thank you to Adon. That was such Adon? a great story. Adon? Yes. Now, to be fair, Adon sent us this story a while ago. I right. was going to save it for Dia de los Muertos or mm. the, the episode around it. Right. But then I forgot that I had it saved separately. And, and so, it was just too good of a story to wait any longer. Yeah, so I was we like, we're not waiting until next year. We're going to wait you. longer. Such a sweet story, too. It is. What a I nice thing to do to see a lonely grave and be like, you know what? I'm going to clean this. Yeah, I get I that. I feel so I feel nice. like that's something that my mother would do. Yeah, but I'm big into dates and things like that mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So that would have definitely. <laughs> yeah, like last episode when you gasped because I was talking about something mm -hmm. that actually happened. It was an anniversary. 92 years prior to the day we were recording it. Are we doing that this? Are we doing that today? Is that happening? Uh, no, I consciously left specific dates out so we would wouldn't have that problem. Okay, great. Perfect. I'm I just focused it. on years. Well, that's the great thing about really fucking old places. You can just talk about the years. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, this one, um, so, and that's the thing is both of what, of what we're doing have with the Gothic architecture mm -hmm. in this, our final episode of yeah. our, of our, of our, of our college, college <laughs> well, Maybe our... we'll do it next November. Maybe that'll be a November thing. Like, I kind of like that. Yeah. It seems like a good time of year for it. Yeah. Right. So. And there's so many more haunted colleges through... we couldn't get to this month. Yes. Naturally. Yes. So, but we decided to end on two real, real strong contenders. Big ones. So, I am doing yeah. the University of Toronto. Oh, And yes. you are doing, we can say what you're doing. I'm doing Oxford. 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 So, I'll start and then you get to. Sweet. I love it. I know nothing about the University of Toronto. Well, I didn't either, but whenever I was looking at the top lists, it's always on the top list. And uh, I personally fucking love Toronto. So, I was mm, totally down to it's a find out. City. Yes. Um, so some of the places I got my information from okay. are Wikipedia, cool. the University of Toronto News, an article on the iguana by Gleneva Bradley Rideout. Uh, what a great name. I know. It's a good name. Uh, University of Toronto Magazine and some other places that I mention within the storytelling. Ooh, yes. Because some of them were so good I had to actually I'm like I'm just going to copy and paste this. It's I don't want to rewrite it. It was Oh, I do I do that a lot myself too. I'm like, oh, this this so well written. They put it well. Something yeah. about something about the task of writing a ghost story just brings out the best in some people. It's true. It's true. So the University of Toronto is known for being haunted, of course. Um considering it's such a huge school, over 61,000 students, I wow. find it a little surprising that on the school's website there is a page titled Our Ghost Story. I figured I might as well start with that. So here's a story taken directly from the University of Toronto. I love website. when a college just embraces its haunts. I know. And especially because a lot of times, a lot of colleges are like, 
nah. Yeah. We don't really. Um, we, we don't want to. We don't want to play that up. Yes. Right. So here's the story as written. Okay. Diabolos and Reznikov were stonemasons who worked on University College during its construction in the late 1850s. Ivan Reznikov was a huge man with fingers and thumbs bigger than his carver's mallet and a violent temper. Oh. Paul Diabolos was a sculptor from Corinth. Corinth, sorry. Pale, <laughs> young, handsome, and of a subtle nature. Their oh, opposite oh. temperaments were reflected in their work. Diabolos was credited with much of the best carved work in the East Wing of University College, destroyed in the fire of 1890. Mm. He was also said to have used Reznikov's hideous face, more like a baboon than a man, as a model for one of the two gargoyles by the chimney between Croft Chapter House and the small cloister. <laughs> Meanwhile... Kind of a dick move. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, around the corner, Reznikov toiled and drank deeply from the flask he kept inside his shirt. He is said to have sculpted a gargoyle in the chimney that showed all the earmarks of a drunkard's touch. Oh. <laughs> the two were in love with the same woman. Oh. Reznikov had promised to marry her, and they had saved together for this, but Diabolos persuaded her to run away with him instead, <sighs> taking Reznikov's savings with them. However, uh, oh. before they could leave, they were found out. On the empty work site, Diabolos and Resnikov confronted one another in the confines of the small cloister at the southwest corner of the building with a worksman, workman's axe. Resnikov attacked Diabolos, who carried a dagger. Oh my. They fought and wrestled until the giant Reznikov backed, up, backed his enemy against the door and struck it with an axe. <gasps> but Diabolos had clutched the iron handle of the door, and as the blow descended, the door swung inward. Both fell headlong onto the floor, and the axe cut deep into the oak door, where the scar is still seen to this day. Ooh. Which it is. I'll... Hopefully we have pictures of that available. Oh, yes. Diabolos fled through the unfinished interior of the building, pursued by Reznikov, along the corridor, into the entrance hall, and up one of the double flights of stone steps to the second floor. There, he listened as his enemy climbed slowly toward him. Oh, he could not escape down the opposite. I know. He could not escape down the opposite flight of steps because the way was blocked with mason's tools, piles of boards, and broken stone. Diabolos stood for several seconds thinking that his time had come, but turned and ran up the wooden stairs to the third floor, where he hid in the angle of the tower. When hmm. Reznikov came into view, Diabolos pounced on him with the dagger. There was a sudden thud, a groan, and Ivan Reznikov fell dead to the floor. <sighs> to conceal the body, Diabolos threw it down the stairwell, over which the circular staircase leading to the roof of the tower was built. What became of Diabolos and the woman, we do not know. Reznikov haunted the college for many years, and it was only since his bones were found after the fire of 1890 and consigned to a decent grave that he left the college in peace. His burial place is said to be under a maple tree at the northeast corner of the UC Quadrangle. Rumor also has it that his head was never found and that a skull discovered much later may belong to him. However, even today, people report that late at night in the college, there are creaking and banging noises that cannot be explained. Ooh! So that, that's just going to open up. That's one of, that's my favorite type of ghost story. So good. Oh, okay, you've got so, everything. Violence, romance, ill will, architecture. 
<laughs> just you wait. Oh, yes. I can't wait. There's some stuff in here I put just for you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're going to really Thank like you. it. Thank you. So University of Toronto is located in... Canada. Toronto. Ontario, right. Canada. We were both right. That's right. We're both right. None of us, no one's wrong. I was thinking wrong. It was founded Sorry, by... Sorry, we were looking for Toronto. <laughs> no points this round, Tatum. Mm, what the Founded by a royal <laughs> charter in 1827 as King's College, mm. the university, which assumed its current name in 1850, is comprised of 11 colleges and is known for quite a few things. It was the birthplace of insulin and stem cell research and was the site of the first practical electron microscope, the development of deep learning, multi-touch technology, the identification of the first black hole, Cygnus X1. Wow. And the development of the theory of NP-completeness. Go Toronto, you. I know. Unsurprisingly, it receives the most annual scientific research funding of any Canadian university. Damn. The University of Toronto has educated three governors general of Canada, four prime ministers of Canada, three foreign leaders, and 14 justices of the Supreme Court. As of March 2019, 10 Nobel laureates, five Turing Award winners, 94 Rhodes Scholars, and one Fields Medalist have been affiliated with the university. I love that. It's so cool. That's yeah, it's a That's good, so it's a great cool. school. So the, uh, the Fields Medal, uh, Fields Medal is a is a is a mathematics award. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's. I uh, wouldn't it's... know because maths aren't my thing. <laughs> yeah, the fields, the fields is a thing. Like the Turing one is basically the Nobel Prize of uh, computation. Right. Named after Alan Turing, the famous, right. the famous that kind of figure. father of, of our grandfather of computational science. Yeah. Fascinating. So the first lieutenant governor of Upper Canada was John Graves Simcoe, and he believed a college was needed to counter the spread of republicanism from the United States. <laughs> I just thought that was fun. So I know it'll stop those Republicans. Other Education. stories we'll talk How about like true. religion playing Sorry. a part into it, but it seems like mostly it was like we need to get the king involved over here, so we don't have that those shenanigans. <laughs> I just really thought that was fun. Anyway, <laughs> of course it meant something very different back then. Right, the Republic. Uh, yeah, like, the oh. university is located a couple of kilometers, just a mile, uh, <laughs> just over a mile north <laughs> of the financial district in downtown Toronto. The following information is what I have for you, Michael. Oh yes. The architecture is epitomized <sighs> by a combination of Romanesque and Gothic revival buildings spread across the eastern and central portions of campus, most dating between 1858 and 1929. Ooh. The architects were Frederick Cumberland and William Storm, who used Cambridge and Oxford as inspiration. <laughs> the University. Weird. We'll be talking uh, about them I later. Know. The University of Toronto libraries. This is really what this is about. Oh. The Libraries make up the third largest academic library system in North America. Oh, my God. Following those of Harvard and Yale, measured by the number of volumes held. Huh. How many would that be, might you ask? Uh, how many would that be? More than 10 million bound volumes. Oh. 5.4 million <laughs> microfilms. Oh, 70,000 serial titles and 1 million maps, films, graphics, and sound recordings. The largest of the libraries, Roberts, Robarts, Roberts Library, holds about 5 million bound volumes that form the main collection for humanities and social sciences. Oh. The Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. Oh, my God 
constitutes one of the largest repositories oh. of publicly accessible rare books and publicly manuscripts. Accessible. Yeah, I know. This is why I'm telling you. I'm touching myself. <laughs> Conventions sorry, in Toronto, please have us come so we can go to this library. Uh, its collections range from ancient Egyptian papyri to uh, oh incunabula. Is that, how, is that right? In, incunabula? I have no and idea libretti. how to pronounce that word, but that's awesome. I could go on and on, but this is Ghost Story Podcast, not a Tell Michael About Libraries um, podcast, so we'll uh, move on. I'll look it up. But that rare... I'm fucking... That's where I'm going for my birthday this year. I'm going to be like, I'm going to go to the library. Go to and just fucking, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, I know. Shit. Okay. Sorry. So, I for didn't... the last little bit about the school, according to the 2020 Times Higher Education World University rankings, the school by, like, the... Just general information on the school. Mm -hmm. The University of Toronto is ranked as the best school in Canada and the 18th best university in the world. Wow. Way to go, Beavers. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. More importantly, they're like the true blue, I think is what they are, but they're the Beavers. Okay. Beavers. Now let's get back to what we're here for. Spooky shit. And we can start... With that story told on the university's website, the Toronto Star did some research into this story, and here is what they found. Number one, there is no mention of a body being found at University College in the newspaper archives. Number two, they could not find anyone with the names Reznikov or Diabolos included in the census of 1851 or 1861. Mm. Three, however... University College seems to have been built between 1856 and 1859, primarily by European stoneworkers, mm. which would mean they wouldn't have been included in either censuses. Okay. Also, Makes sense, yeah. The college did catch fire on February 14th, 1890, when a kerosene lamp was knocked over. Oops. So that actually happened. Uh, thanks to there being only one fire hydrant nearby, that hydrant not having enough water pressure to reach the higher floors, and a sharp wind that would have made it difficult to fight the fire regardless, <sighs> the fire destroyed the main tower and east wing of the building. Most of the library's 30,000 book collection burned as well, save oh. for a few hundred books. Oh, my One God. One of the books that burned. No. No was a 1491 edition of Dante's Divine Comedy. Oh. Oh. I know. Oh, I'm going to cry I now. know. These are so... Oh. It's, it's very hard. Uh, people actually die, too, so we'll get into That's that. Fine. I mean, of course, people die, but books shouldn't... <laughs> books should never die. <laughs> books should never die. On the They're bright better than side, us. On the bright side, the wind blew the fire in the opposite direction of the rest of the campus, so no lives were lost. Sure, fine, we'll take it. I repeat. <laughs> no lives were lost and no bodies were found. Mm. So it seems this story is most likely a legend. It does seem a little too detailed. Yes, yes. Especially for happening way back when. And it, it turns well, yeah, out that it's like, somebody... Who was there to watch this that, yeah, you know, didn't, like, somebody, that didn't go on record? Because it sounds like it, it reads like a short story. Right. And what happened is somebody said that they, uh, I believe it was in the late 1800s, um, they ran into his ghost and his ghost told them everything that happened. And he wrote it down in a short story. So, well. There you have it. God. Um, I need more ghosts story, to be that articulate with me. I, I did read. Help me read, with my writer's block. 
I did read a fascinating story about something found in the walls during a 2018 uh, revitalization project oh, at the University of College. 2018. Oh, so just recently. It was a massive undertaking to rejuvenate and update the historic building. When demolition crews began removing the building's old plaster and drywall in East and West Halls and Croft Chapter House, a crew member came across something peeking out of the drywall. It was a purse in pristine condition and still containing the personal contents of the owner, Suzanne Rocheford. In 1987, 30 years before, Rocheford was a fourth year engineering student and was about to cash $2,000 in Canada savings bonds to help pay for her tuition. The bonds were sitting snug in her purse on her Knox College dorm room dresser while she went to the washroom. When she returned, her purse, its contents, and the bonds were gone. The purse was returned to her with its contents still inside. The savings bonds, birth certificate, Simpsons card, and a free hug coupon. (laughs) All of that was in there 30 years later. So her purse disappeared off her dresser only to be found 30 years later in the walls of a building two minutes away. Wow. What the fuck? Well, this is the first university to discover a black hole. That's true. Maybe. It's <laughs> a so part of me. Like, nobody's asking that. They told the story. I'm like, but why aren't we asking what fuck, how that fucking happened? Well, because there's no explanation. There's no explanation. It's so weird. That's so weird. Um, And also, I wonder how much those savings bonds are worth now. I wonder if that free hug coupon is still good. Mm, probably not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I've never gotten one with an expiration date, but you got to imagine, like, right? So hey, the Knox- this thing is forty years old. I'm gonna be like, oh, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> right. So let's talk about the Knox College building and yeah. its neighboring house for a bit. Uh, you can see it as the fictional Culver University in 2008's The Incredible Hulk. Ah. Uh, that's one with Edward Norton. It's ah. not. It's not anyone's fault, really. It's not his fault. It's not the Hulk's fault. It's not 2008's fault. Certainly not the Knox College's fault. (laughs) Uh, It was just a mistake all around. You might also recognize it as the College in Cocktail. Oh. Or in 2012. The Tom Cruise movie? Yes. Or in 2012's Total Recall. Mm. And it also played the role of Princeton in Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. (laughs) That was the Knox College. Knox is home for theological students, as well as the undergrad and graduate students who reside there. So uh, the... There's housing and schooling there. Okay. Um, next door to Knox is the McDonald Mowat, in M-O-W-A-T-T, Mowat, Mowat mm-hmm. House, which is a three-story brick home built in 1872 in the French Second Empire style. It was acquired by Knox College in 1910. The first prime minister of Canada, Sir John A. Macdonald, purchased the home and lived there from 1876 to 1878. Sir Oliver Mowat, prime minister of Ontario, bought the home in 1888, and it stayed in his family until 1902. McDonald Mowat House. That's why it's called that. Okay. So, the second floor of the house is said to be haunted by an imposing-looking man who walks the halls at night. Even though McDonald only lived in the house for two years, it's assumed he is the spirit that haunts the house. He's walking around with a purse going, where the fuck did this this come from? shit? (laughs) The reason they think that he's the one that haunts it is because shortly after his death in 1891... The new prime minister, Sir John Thompson, and so uh, he died in office, okay. the first prime minister did. So John Thompson took over. So the interim or whatever. Right, or just, uh, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I didn't do any more research gotcha. into it than that, but gotcha. that's what happened. He was approached by a young Ottawa man who said that he was in contact with McDonald's spirit. McDonald 
his ghost had asked him to tell Thompson specific information about cabinet members and proposed cabinet changes. Based on the information given, Thompson thoroughly believed the young man was speaking to McDonald's ghost. Ooh. I don't think that means whatever walk the halls at night must be McDonald's. I mean, why leave the guy who lived there longer running out of the running, right? Moat was there way longer. Why couldn't he be an imposing figure? I don't know. I think he's a better candidate for it. And maybe. I guess it depends on what the criteria for staying behind are. Yeah. Well, maybe just maybe McDonald's, McDonald's is just more because famous. He died because he died in office. Right. Maybe he felt like unfinished. Yeah. Like, maybe Moat had just a better, more like, had, maybe Moat's ending was more of the kind that was able to make him, to let him let go. Right. Well, and, and also, McDonald's I mean, you think about it, like, who would you rather have haunting? You know, who would you rather tell people haunt this house? Is it, do you want it to be, like, for us, George Washington or, like, right john tyler or whatever <laughs> just yeah like somebody. oh yeah he was somebody and some but he was first and so that could be why mm, maybe, maybe but there is that is definitely known to be haunted Ooh. the robarts library library oh, there's a lot of library weird you just said library like the robart the robert's library the robert's library yeah the roberts it's r-o-b-a-r-t-s robarts i oh, think is how you say it. yeah obviously since it's a library it's, it's haunted. haunted as fuck. Yeah. You get the usual library haunting stories there, but there is some speculation as to who might be haunting this intimidating building. There's a sad story regarding the lead architect who designed Robarts. It said he was so embarrassed and saddened when he, the finished library turned out to resemble a turkey. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, no. it'll make sense. It'll make sense in a second. Oh. He was so depressed about it that he took his own life by jumping off the 13th floor shortly before the library opened. Well, that's a good way to ensure that you'll only ever be remembered Stuck for making turkey. a turkey. Like, this story is what I like to call a hashtag sorta. It's not an actually. We don't have a full-blown actually. We have a sorta. We have a sorta. Okay. Right. We okay. have a sorta. We have First of all... <laughs> There's some there's some red flags. There's some, <laughs> the first red flag for me that is the biggest red flag, I think, is the 13th floor. He jumped off the 13th floor. Right. That's a very specific bad luck number. Also usually not included. Yes. not in, But even if it was, that would be a very specific thing that somebody who, like, that's a very... Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a red flag detail. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, right. That's it's a, those kinds of details are trying, what you okay. Go. You're writing a screenplay now. We get it. Yeah, it's it's kind of like when you watch something spooky, a video, a spooky video. Mm -hmm. You always have to ask yourself, why are they taking this why video? Are they filming? Why yeah. film at all? Uh, are you just? I'm just randomly filming, you know, yeah. blah 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 for no particular reason. And oh, look what happens. The only thing now with the TikTok and stuff like that, it's like people were film stupid shit for no reason constantly right. yeah so, so now it's but there should but, be a but reason back, but there was a there was a time when it was like oh you can spot the fake because yeah. there's absolutely no justification there's for no what they film this unless they intended to find a yeah. ghost and they throw oh, i didn't see it at the time you know it's, yeah, right. it's a bullshit pretext yes so you gotta look out for that stuff but it turns out that robarts is a classic example of brutalist architectural style uh, and the architects were praised for their accomplishments upon completion of the building even if it does look like a turkey. <laughs> Would you like to talk a little bit about brutalist architecture? No. No. I mean, that kind of sums it up, right? It, it's very, well, it's just very... Um, it's aggressive looking. Well, it, 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 it they wanted to kind of um, do away with ornament and just make it, not in the modernist style where everything is clean and open and, and there's a lot of right angles. It's more like, no, we want to make this as... Um, 
it it had more expression. It was very expressive. But it, was it was more like uh, de Goya or whatever. Where it's like we're gonna make this kind of look like kind of naturalistic stuff. So like a cathedral might end up looking more like a mountain than than a Gothic cathedral. There were mm -hmm. it was very weird. It, there's it's actually it's very, different types of it. Yeah, it's yeah. a very poorly defined school of architecture. It was just kind of this loosely. It's like futurism. It's just kind of like oh, it's this is yeah. thing we want to do. We want to make it. It's you know, it's like a bunch of architects got together and we're like, let's make this metal. Let's make like, people think. But why? Yeah, yeah, let's let's make so, it look like a turkey. Yeah, exactly. Does it really look like a turkey? It kind of does. Like the floor plan, or like, um, or you look, or when I'll you go you in the building, you look like you're walking into a giant turkey. I'll show you later. Okay, I'll show you later because I've okay. never seen it. Because it kind of does. Um, there's also <laughs> there's no evidence that any of the designers involved ever took their own lives. However, there is a suicide associated with the Roberts Library, John P. Roberts who was the 17th oh. premier of Ontario and to whom Robert's library is named after, unfortunately did take his own life in oh. 1982. Oh. So. Not at the library? Not at the library, but it is named after him. So it makes you wonder oh, so if he like, hmm. is haunting the library that's yeah. named after him. It wouldn't be the first time. Also, I want to say this about architecture. Um, if you're hired to build a library, um, by a school, any any kind of huge, massive public building that's an undertaking like that, you're not going to be the sort of person that can accidentally make the building look like a turkey and no. not know until it's built. It's right. just not how it's architecture not. works. Whoopsies. Are yeah. Oh, I didn't mean for that to well, look like a dick. You know, yeah, you did. So here's some more information about the building itself. Inside the hulking structure, there are secret alcoves, hidden staircases, and indoor balconies. It's very tall. Ow, that wasn't a ghost. That was my elbow. Mm -hmm. was, it, was it your funny bone? Like legit? or just your elbow? Just my elbow. Okay. Well, I mean, that's better. <laughs> um, it's on... <laughs> so it's huge. It's very, very... It's got a lot of floors, obviously, if right, they say. Right, right. And there's a very small elevator. So online, I saw a lot of people bitching about people who'll just go up one floor if they don't obviously can take the <laughs> stairs, that kind of thing. I remember, I remember that in the dorm. Uh, it's on a Reddit list of the most diabolically evil-looking buildings in the world. I am looking up a picture yeah. right now. It does. It looks like someone's evil lair is definitely inside of it. <laughs> Some of the names it's been given are Fort Book, <laughs> <laughs> Jail, and the Monolith of Despair. <laughs> okay. So I'm it definitely look. has a presence. I'm going to look at this. I got to find it. <laughs> I got to find this. Okay. While you look, I'm going to keep going. Please, please go. Okay. <laughs> oh, he saw it. <laughs> <laughs> it does look like a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm glad I you mean, like it. It's really, I mean, it's... Terrifying. It's, it's hideous. I'm like, I'm so, I'm very, oh God. I like, okay, the side angle is much better, but that straight on angle where it like, yeah, okay, it straight up looks like, it looks like a cubist turkey. Yeah. So it seems like, <laughs> especially looking after, like after looking at it, there were some kids that were like, I can't, I'm sorry. How could you make a building that looks like a, like a turkey? And then they created the story from that. Um, oh my God. So oh. moving on, everybody, wa go so look at that. Go Google it. It'll, it'll Sorry, make it up. I can't. <laughs> it's terrible. It's, you know what? It's a few changes would make it a gorgeous building, but it's just, it's just concrete too. It's, it's solid just concrete, concrete, solid concrete, and it's like that giant turkey neck structure in the in the, but you know in what? the front is like okay. It's it's not what's outside. Inside are all those books. That's where the majority of the libraries are. So and that's where it has. It's where you go to just gobble up books. Yes. <laughs> so there's a there's a whole 
subsection in Reddit of like places they like to have sex in Toronto, University of Toronto. <laughs> and that's one of the places. In they, the shadow of the turkey. Right. They don't, it's not as common because it's not as hidden, but there are plenty of hidden places if that's, that's so your thing. Funny. So. <laughs> Sorry, that just, that delights me. I'm for not some saying weird to do reason. that. I am not supporting it. No, just don't have public sex, no. people. Come on. Don't do that. People Especially have to not in the shadow of a turkey. Of Never in the shadow of a turkey. Or inside a turkey. Just don't, no. don't have sex inside a turkey. Yeah, Thanksgiving is coming. It's not. <laughs> That's an us thing. That's an us thing. Your Thanksgiving Sorry. is not the same time. Okay, right, the Christie right. Mansion. First of all, the man who owned this mansion initially invented the Oreo. Oh, my God. So we must God. pay him proper respect. How many accolades does this college have? I mean. They discovered black holes. They, they, they did they this. They did everything. Insulin, I think also they're the ones that. Else. And the Oreo. When the, um, when the, oh, Apollo was out and mm -hmm. they had to help figure out how to come up with something to help save them. That yeah. was, I think, at University of Toronto. I think that was. Call the job. Oreo man. He'll know. know. He'll know. Oreos will know. Um, Toronto respected him. They named a street after him. So the nice. mansion stands in one of the highest profile spots in Toronto, across the street from the provincial legislature at Queen's Park. Hmm. Christie passed away in his mansion. His son, Robert, inherited everything, the money, the business, and the mansion. Now, um, I think this is near campus, on campus, but it's included in all the campus stories, so I'm including it. Okay, if you believe the rumors and Haunted Toronto by John Robert Colombo, this is when things started to get weird. Oh, dear. When the sun took over. So uh, this is one of those stories that I enjoyed. It was told so well on This is Can Canadia. Can this Canada is Canadian. No, right. I'm right. glad I'm not the only person that has that's a hard time resisting pronouncing it that way. Canadiana. That made it even harder. This is Canadiana. <laughs> Canadiana. Canadiana.com. <laughs> so I'm going to read their telling of the story directly. Go for it. Robert Christie, you see, had a mistress. And while he was living in the Christie mansion with his family, he decided she should live there too. He kept her hidden in a secret chamber behind the wood paneling in a library. They call it room 29. It was fully furnished with a bed and a bathroom and a butler to bring her all of her meals so she would never have to leave. She would just hang out in there waiting for him to visit so they could have sex and carry on whatever twisted semblance of a romantic life you can have when one of you is being held in the secret room of a Victorian mansion by your lunatic cookie baron lover. Slowly, go <laughs> <laughs> Slowly going mad as he loses interest and you're left alone more and more often, hour after hour after hour, until you finally can't take it anymore and you hang yourself from the rafters with a bed sheet. Oh, God. That's <laughs> fucked up. I know. That's so fucked up. I know. They say Robert had her body secretly removed under the cover of darkness and buried somewhere on the grounds of Queen's Park. Some claim the guilt drove him to distraction. The business suffered. He was forced to sell his mansion to the university, and soon he followed his father to the grave. That, as you might imagine, is why they say the ghost of his mistress still haunts the Christie Mansion. The building became home to the local chapter of the Sisters of St. Joseph's for a while, and it's now the Jesuits Regis College. Oh, it's a college. That's why. I should have remembered that. <laughs> I, I <mean>. didn't. <laughs> I didn't. So it's many colleges. Yeah. They say that if you enter room 29 all by yourself at night, the door will swing shut behind you. And this is usually with women, too, specifically. You will find it locked. Nothing you do will open it. And if no one on the other side of the door hears your screams, you'll be trapped all night 
just like Robert Christie's mistress all those years ago. Oh, mistress is such a... Yeah. Not the word. Um, um, victim? Prisoner? Victim? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, oh, my God. But you, yeah. got, you have to wonder if, like, I, in my movie, the Oreo idea came from her. Right. And she couldn't. He had, like, you have, I have to keep but him it, here. But no, it was a son. Oh, it was a son. It was son. a son. Okay. Yeah, he was fine. He was great. Very oh, well right. loved. Okay. okay. But, but, so it sounds fun, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> now there's a room. New, uh, now there is a room 29 in the mansion. Mm. That is fact. Is it called room 29? Yes. That's odd. Robert usually did, don't number their rooms. I know. He did have an affair, which led to the unraveling of his marriage and his business and his eventual downfall. Mm. He did sell the mansion to the college. He did have to sell his uh, company to Nabisco. Um, oh. Yeah, along with other cookies. I didn't want to. I don't want to talk about it. It'll make me hungry. <laughs> no, I'm like, what else? I gotta stop talking about it. Sell? <laughs> I gotta stop talking about it. Uh, whether someone was kept in the room or hanged in the room, we don't know. But how would we fucking know? Yeah, you got one of the richest families. A cookie in, magnate. A cookie magnate. He has so much power. All the power. <laughs> how do we know what happened? I mean, a cookie magnate is essentially a drug lord, a legal it's drug true. lord. Oh, it's a good drug. <laughs> all right, all right. So that is that's the such Christie a fucked mansion. up story. I'm, I know. I want it to be true, as awful as it is. I want it to be true yeah. because it's like what a what a what a story. Yeah. What a movie. So this next story is more story and less ghosts, but I cannot imagine it is not haunted. Oh please! It is one Spadina Crescent. Spadina Crescent. Spadina Crescent. That's the name of the street. Okay. This is an architecture faculty building. The Gothic Revival building was bought by the university in 1972, but was built in 1874 to house the Presbyterian Knox College before it moved to the Knox University mm, building. Mm, mm, okay. During World War I, it was turned into a military hospital where, incidentally, a 21-year-old Amelia Earhart cared for <gasps> wounded veterans with influenza. Oh, wow. I know, that's just a random little... Huh fun thing uh it's now except it was a hospital right okay. during world war one it's now mainly occupied by the fine arts department of the faculty of arts and science in june 2013 the university of toronto and announced a significant overhaul and renovation of the building completed in 2017 in 2001 david buller was stabbed to death in his office at the university of toronto he was an art professor Oh. On that Thursday afternoon, Buller was in his office working at his computer on an art project when he was stabbed seven times with a knife. A cleaning lady found his body just before 7 a.m. the next morning. The Ooh. case has never been solved. And when did this happen? 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. With the tragic history of the building and the creepy atmosphere Gothic revival buildings tend to have, like we've discussed, mm, oh, yeah. it's gotten the attention of plenty of ghost hunters. Makes sense. It's got overhanging ivy. It's got grinning gargoyles. It's a ghost hunter's paradise. It's got a 115-foot spire. Wow. Like, wow. it's terrifying. Oh. I'm scared. Oh. Oh. So on that September 10th, 2009, Leah Kubik, one such ghost hunter, tragically lost her footing during an investigation, <sighs> and she fell three stories to her death. <gasps> Oh, shit. Yeah. That, of course, That's why you don't go on ghost tours that involve parkour. Yes. Don't parkour. No, don't. That, of course, and this was only 10 years ago. Jesus Christ. Um, That has only encouraged the ghost stories and investigations. One description I read on the varsity from an investigation tour 
in 2010, so this is the following year, Mm -hmm. uh, described it as the following. It hadn't even been a year at this point. 11.45 p.m., we enter one spadina and are instantly hit with its noxious, musty smell. The wooden staircase leading to the second floor is gigantic. I remark glibly that glibly, 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 glibly. It just sounds silly. Sorry. <laughs> You're just thinking of giblets because of the I'm, turkey building. Well, and also like Studio Ghibli. <laughs> um, Ghibli. Gib- Gif. G- I remark <laughs> that it has the same atmosphere as the Overlook Hotel. Mm. Ugly fluorescent lights illuminate the building, which is half renovated and half in a state of decay. 12.13 a.m. We start our tour of one Spadina. It's oppressively hot throughout the building. We walk up to what we believe is the third floor, but I can't be sure. One Spadina is like a labyrinth with each layer of its shifting priorities stacked on top of it. Uh, it's alternatively been Knox College, a hospital for influenza patients, the insulin lab for Connaught Laboratories, an eye donation bank, huh. art studios, and now houses the Department of Architecture. What a weird casserole of buildings mm-hmm. that place has been. We enter 12.15 a.m. We enter what the guide terms a meat locker. She opens a large metallic door and are hit with another pungent and terrible odor. This may have been a freezer where Connaught Laboratories kept pig pancreases to manufacture insulin. Mm. Uh, the tour also points out a dead, decaying rat that is above in a wire mesh vent not too far from the meat locker. It looks like it's been there forever. 12.19 a.m. We head to a couple of small windows that have iron bars placed over them to prevent access to the roof. This is due to the tragedy that occurred last September when a woman fell to her death from the third floor while trying to jump from one roof to the other. They still have not repaired the chicken wire mesh she fell through. Oh. Of course, that was in 2010, and like I said, the right, building's been still, renovated. Just knowing that, like, oh, just yeah, last just, year, that's where that happened. I know, Ooh. I know. It seems highly likely that this building is haunted as fuck. fuck. And here are a few more buildings with ghost stories. Okay. Heart House. Heart House. Working late one winter night, Heart House theater manager Paul Templin decided to sleep in his office and asked the security guards not to wake him. I mean, the problem here is it's the theater. <laughs> Science! <laughs> Sometime during the night, the door swung open and hit his cot. The door was glass-paned so he could see there was someone standing behind it. The room was filling with smoke, the result of an electrical fire. So Templin quickly left and gathered with Hart's house overnight staff on the sidewalk outside. He asked if anyone had been to his office. No one had. Templin credits the ghostly apparition for saving his life. Then we have... Massey College. For the 18 years, he was a ma- he was master at Massey College. Robertson Davies, who I read, I love after reading about him, captivated the crowd at the annual Christmas party called Gaudy Night. Oh, oh, uh, wow, uh-huh. Jamie, that um, sorry, that will have a role to play in All what right. I'm going to tell you. That's pretty great. He did uh, spectral stories of his own invention, and this is not. This is the writer, Robertson Davies, yes? Uh, I don't know. He was the master of the college. I don't know if he was a writer, too. But I think it's the same he, It could be. He wrote, uh, he he would tell, He t- one night he told this really big ghost story. Uh-huh. And it, it was really creepy. And you can find it online. It's really great. Um, 
And so everybody loved it. So he started telling ghost stories every Christmas at this ah, Christmas party. So bringing yes. that whole, like, what we're doing. It's kind of cool. I love it. So uh, he's, because of that, he sometimes told his fellow faculty members that, given his druthers, he'd haunt the college himself one day. Davies may have gotten his wish when he passed away in 1995. Students past and present whisper as of inexplicable phenomena within Massey's walls that began the day he died. Wraith-like figures that disappear into thin air, objects that mysteriously move or show up in unlikely locations, and thuds and crashes coming from empty rooms. Ooh. <laughs> He's like, now I get to be a ghost story. I know. It's so oh, good. It's kind of awesome. So I'm hoping as Christmas is coming up, if you guys are there, that yeah. that activity might get yeah. more exciting too. Ooh. Okay. Then there's the Wahlberg building. Not like Marky Mark. Like it's, <laughs> it's W-A-L-L-B-E-R-G. Okay. As a first year engineering student, Leo Comital or Comitale or Cometail. Uh <laughs> <laughs> was working with a comet peer. tail. Yes, comet tail, comet ale. It's an alcohol. That's what it sounds like. Oh, okay, it's a space themed alcohol uh, that you like. You go to, to a special night at a bar, and they'd be like, "What did you want? To, I'll, I'll order the comet ale." <laughs> um, okay, so <laughs> it sounds pretty good, actually. Leo was working with a peer on a, an electronics assignment in an old lab in the Wahlberg Building. They were stumped when they noticed a man standing nearby they didn't recognize. He asked us what was wrong, and we told him we didn't know. We had built the circuit exactly as described, but it was not behaving as expected. The mysterious man told the students to double-check their wires. When they did, they found one was broken. They replaced it and completed the assignment. When they turned to thank the man, he was no longer there. No one else could remember seeing anyone who matched his description. Neither of us saw this man again during our time at the university. Nice. Helpful. Helpful ghosts. So nice. I like it when they're nice. Me too. I like it when they're scary too. But... Um, and the last one for today. Oh. For me. For you, yes. In the 1980s, student, this is at the Laidlaw Library. Mm. In the 1980s, students held a regular pub night on Saturdays in the basement of Laidlaw Library. One evening at about 1.30 a.m., the overnight watchman, Barry Breen, noticed that the library was in complete darkness. The pub had ended. At 4 a.m., he looked up from his book and was alarmed to see that all three floors of the library were lit up. He called the University of Toronto Police and advised them that a break-in was in progress. Two, two officers arrived within minutes and searched the library for half an hour. Neither of the library's two entrances sh so showed any signs of forced entry. Green wondered if the librarian had set the light timer incorrectly. The officers agreed that it was a plausible theory, except that the library was not equipped with a light timer. <sighs> and that... Oh, I love it. I love this a university. a few of the stories from the University of Toronto. It is, it is, yeah, it's got oh, a lot of stories. I love it. Yeah. So you want to take a little break? Have a little yeah, drink? Yeah, yeah, a little Oxford. drink and get on to Oxford. Sweet. Okay, we're back, and we have a really funny coincidence. Yeah, we just we just kind of did a little bit of research. So Robertson Davies, the 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 gentleman she you referred to earlier, but like mm -hmm. he used to do the gaudy nights, yes, ghost stories with the Massey College. Um, with the Massey College, uh, he was founding master of Massey College. That yes. turns out to be a writer that I know have read, uh, not know, but uh, that you have but, read. But he went to Oxford, yes, and that is probably where I believe he got the term gaudy night from, because that's what uh, that's what Oxford refers to. 
um, its galas, its its alumni galas, as or did for a long time. And in fact, as I'll mention briefly in my little history, the novel, a mystery novelist Dorothy L. Sayers, who was among the first graduating class of women allowed to actually obtain their degrees from Oxford, uh, wrote a book, a murder mystery called Gaudy Night, that uh, sort of takes place at one of these galas. And there's an interesting connection there. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now this guy is possibly yeah, haunting. Possibly haunting the place, which is something he would love to do. Yeah. He, uh, he was also a novelist and a playwright and uh, is considered one of the, the best, um, one of the finest Canadian novelists that have ever And he lived. does... Kind of retellings, kind of not. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're there, saying? Uh, he writes um, several of his books. In fact, I think there's one called The Manticore that I haven't read. But, I've heard um, of that. There's several books of his where he will, he was a scholar, so he took these sort of ancient uh, myths and he recast them in modern lights. They're not expressly supernatural books, but there may be elements of the supernatural in them. It's just like when you unpack the story enough, you're like, oh, that's a retelling of say the Icarus myth or something like that. It's really right. clever and awesome. So cool. And if you see a picture of him, he just looks like the kind of guy that would haunt a uh, building. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause he looks like me, like the composer Brahms. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Um, I would have loved, sorry. I'm just, I, you said that. I'm like, so oh, funny. him, he haunts a Colorado. I know we have to go to Toronto. We have to go. We have to go. I much rather, I would, I honestly, I'd much rather go there than Oxford. Uh -oh. um, no, I just did like, so here's the thing about, I'm afraid that mine is going to be such a, it's not going to be a good ender for yours. Yours was so good. Here's the thing about <laughs> British ghost stories. Um, they follow a formula. They're more about atmosphere than shock because I think yeah. to <laughs> John Oliver, expat John Oliver of, of Last Week Tonight fame, yes. um, once famously quipped, Didn't he do an entire episode on slap lawsuits? He did. Well, <laughs> because, how about that? Because he was in the middle of a lawsuit himself oh. um, <laughs> for supposedly slandering someone. How? Strange and unexpected. Um, weird. Again, another crossover. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, but he famously, John Oliver wants in. Spitake. My favorite kind of mushroom. I. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck am I talking about? I, I lost know. my train of thought. No, John Oliver oh. once famously quipped when talking about England, his homeland, that he called it the country, quote, uh, the country of classism and undiagnosed clinical depression. It's so, I don't, I do not presume to know whether there's any grain of truth to say in that. But if there is, it kind of explains why ghost stories in, in most British, classical British ghost stories, they, they follow a very reliable formula where it's kind of just the fact of the ghost itself is enough to be like, cool, that's spooky, story over. It, the ghost rarely does anything all that dramatic. It's just the fact that they live. And I guess if if you are of a sufficiently gloomy disposition, the most horrifying thing you can think of is that, oh, there's more after this? <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of explains... Oh it kind of explains, uh, at least to my satisfaction, the, the sort of sense. timbre of the British ghost story. So there's a lot of that in Oxford. A lot of it were just kind of legends. And it's kind of like, if you talk to people that, I mean, if one, one thing, but it's like old as like educated legends? Yeah. Oh. Um, uh, and the fact that everyone's kind of like, oh, yeah, of course there's a ghost. Whatever. But there yeah. are not many instances that I can find where people have actually, like in America, we're all about it. If you, you find someone who's had a, a real experience. But in, in, in British, I guess these, these, I mean, for one thing, Oxford is almost a thousand years old. Right. Um, it is the oldest it is the oldest college on in the european continent and it's the it's the second oldest continually operational um 
college after Bologna, Italy, which that's it's, right. it's the one that's been continuously operating. It's about the same age. Um, they don't even know when Oxford was founded, honestly. That's oh, how wow. far back in history it goes. They know. I'll get into it. But anyway, I'll just say it's like, don't expect too much drama. Right. Because it's a British ghost story. We had so to it's do very, it. It's very subtle. Yeah. There's some good ones here. And, Wait, and the history you know, of Oxford itself too. is pretty interesting. Well, I did not I, focus much on the architecture because oh. it's all just, you know, castles. Um, um, well, I was going to say, <laughs> it's interesting, too, when you think about, you know, the English ghost story, British ghost stories. Um, and then you have Irish ghost stories and you have Scottish ghost mm-hmm. stories. So there's a, th- that Celtic mythology is very yeah, heavy. Very much so. But it seems as though... That mythology, certain areas are more likely to grab onto and, and hold onto yeah. than others. It's almost like an identifying thing. I agree. Whereas, you know, and th- those are more Scotland, more Ireland mm-hmm. than Britain. They or they don't. Yeah, Irish I mean, guess, ghost I guess stories... they're British, but you know, well, England, British, but yeah, England, England like English ghost stories, like the English. Don't get mad at me for not getting it right. I don't live there, and my state is almost as big as all of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's confusing. <laughs> so... I mean, not in the nicest way. Yeah, I love it now, over there. No, though the ancient uh, conglomerate of schools didn't officially call itself a college until sometime around the 12th century, there's evidence Oxford was an educational hub as early as 1096, making it the oldest university in the English-speaking world and the second oldest university in continuous operation just after Bologna. Um, an early watershed moment came around 1167 when Henry II banned students from attending the University of Paris, thus compelling them to satisfy their high in academic aspirations on English soil. Thus, Oxford grew. How many and the people town were getting? How many people were getting a higher education? If you in, wanted to go in the seminary, that's what you had to do. Uh, that's what colleges originally were for. Um, for priesticles. For priesticles. <laughs> for the clergy. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, so the, so Oxford grew, and when we say Oxford, I'm talking about the town and as well as the college. And so it's an unusual thing. There's not a main campus of Oxford. It's just a bunch of different schools mm-hmm. in this town. Um, fun fact: When theological disputes between students and Oxford town folk turned violent in 1209, that sounds exciting. Many would-be scholars fled northeast to Cambridge, thus establishing ah. England's other ancient institution of higher learning. The rival universities are often referred to now jointly as Oxbridge. Oxford is comprised. It sounds delicious. (laughs) Oxford is comprised of 39 constituent colleges and a range of academic departments, which are organized into four divisions the humanities, the social sciences, the mathematical, physical, and life sciences division, and finally the medical sciences division. The colleges are self governing entities within the university proper, each exercising strict control over enrollment criteria and curriculum. The buildings are scattered throughout the city center. As you might be surprised, the university has no main campus. Oxford operates the world's oldest university museum, as well as the largest Mm. university press in the world, and boasts the largest academic library system in England. Well, to be fair, Oxford boasts a lot of things. (laughs) Well, (laughs) alumni include no less than 28 prime ministers. (laughs) 72 Nobel laureates, three Fields medalists, and six Turing Award winners. Those Fields Um, medals must be really hard to win. So all these people that have either studied, worked, or... Yeah, uh, Fields medalists, there's only like four to five given every four years. Oh, wow. uh, To like the top mathematics people uh, in the world. So like one a year on average. Something like that, I think. And so... uh, Because they have three out of a quadrillion years. 
and Toronto has one. So that's, I mean, and those are the two of the yeah. top schools yeah. in the world. So, so. that's pretty significant. Um, so uh, no less than 160 Olympic medals have been awarded to Oxford alumni. Oh. The university is also home to the uh, Rhodes Scholarship, one of the mm -hmm. oldest international graduate scholarship programs in the world. Old as it is, however, as I mentioned earlier, the university has no known foundation date. Records indicate that teaching went on there as early as 1096, but it's unclear when the university decided to actually start calling itself one. Beginning in 1167, the onslaught of young men returning from the prestigious University of Paris gave Oxford a steady supply of students eager to further their education in the style to which they'd grown accustomed on the continent. The early <laughs> historian, Gerald of Wales, uh, lectured, to, to them, lectured to these scholars in 1188, and the first known foreign scholar who has the greatest name ever, Emo of Friesland, oh, goodness. <laughs> um, came to Oxford to expand his studies in 1190. Much like write poetry and shit. Right, <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, the head of the university held the title of chancellor from at least 1201, and the masters were officially recognized as part of a universitas, Latin for corporation, in 1231. The university was granted a royal charter in 1248 during the reign of Henry Jeez. III. Now, the students associated together on the basis of geographical origins, one representing the north, which included people hailing north of the River Trent, and one representing the south, which included those south so of the River Trent. Uh, um, this tradition continues to influence uh, student affiliations. Members of many religious orders, including Dominicans, Franciscans, Carmelites, Augustinians, etc., etc., settled in Oxford in the mid-13th century, gaining political influence and maintaining student housing. Private benefactors began establishing colleges around the same time, um, Organized as self-contained academic communities, among them the earliest founders was William of Durham, who in 1249 endowed University College. Another, such a strange name. University College. Yeah. Which are you? Uh, but <laughs> it's just different. Uh, another early founder, Walter de Merton, Lord Chancellor of England and later Bishop of Rochester, devised a series of regulations for college life. Merton College thereby became the model for all Oxford schools, as well as those associated with Cambridge. Around 1334, an attempt by disgruntled Oxford scholars to found a new university in Lincolnshire was successfully blocked when Oxford and Cambridge petitioned King Edward II to declare the founding of any new university in England illegal. Hmm. <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge, uniquely, have since held a duopoly over the country's higher educational system, wow. which is the it's the only example in the European continent or any of the islands where that's the case. Wow. Oxford was heavily influenced by Renaissance ideals from the late 15th century onwards. Among university scholars of the period were William Grosson, who revived the study of Greek languages, and noted biblical scholar John Collette. When England kicked off the Reformation by breaking with the Roman Catholic Church, recusant Oxford scholars fled to the continent. As a result, the medieval scholastic method of teaching, with its emphasis on theology and classical rhetoric, gave way to the more radical Renaissance methods. For all its innovation, however, Oxford's reputation as an institute of higher learning began to decline in the Age of Enlightenment. Enter William Laud, L-A-U-D, uh, Chancellor and Archbishop, Archbishop, <laughs> Archbishop, uh, <laughs> Ooh, <God. laughs> Chancellor and Archbishop of Canterbury, who in 1636 codified the university statutes. These, to a large extent, remained its governing regulations until the mid-19th century. Laud was also responsible for the granting of a charter securing privileges for the university press, and he made significant contributions to the Bodleian Library, which is one of the largest in England. Right. Now, another fun fact, from the Reformation onwards, students had to belong to the Church of England to be eligible for a BA. Well, yes, once that change happened. Mm -hmm. Well, and I wonder, 
how many you know people that were there really just wanted the education. They didn't necessarily want to be, you know, seminary students specifically. Right. And so how that how many students were like, nah, we're fine with the Church of England. It's whatever. It's or what, if they were cool. forced out anyway. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, I wonder how mm -hmm. they a lot. But that and you could study there. But not, you just couldn't you just couldn't win a degree. And right. just like women could study there too after a certain period, but they couldn't win their degree. They would only allow there I'll get into it in a second, but their women could study there, but uh, they could matriculate there, but they were only allowed to but that would it, it would make them eligible for degrees from another university, specifically Dublin. Uh, um so like Cambridge was like or Oxford was like, Well, you can study here, but we're not giving you the paper. Right. Um so like, okay, we'll study here and then it would it would um what's the word transfer to Dublin oh. <laughs> where they could then go and get a degree. Um, but it still sucked. Cause then they got to say, well, they want to say, Hey, I went to fucking Oxford and, but that changed anyway. So between, but then instead they got to say, Hey, I got to go to Dublin, which is way more progressive and inclusive. Way more. Right. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second. So between 1642 and 1649, the university functioned as a kind of headquarters for the Royalist party. Those who supported the King, even though the town of Oxford itself supported the opposing parliamentarian party. Party, who under Oliver Cromwell wanted a constitutional monarchy, form a government that uh, essentially reduced the king's power. Mm -hmm. More on that in a second. From the mid-18th century, the university took little part in political conflicts. Uh, Wadham College, founded in 1610, was the undergraduate college of Sir Christopher Wren. <laughs> Your man. My man. Your main architect um, man. Himself part of a brilliant experimental group known as the Oxford Philosophical Society, which included scientific luminaries Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke. This group formed the nucleus that went on to found the Royal Society. Now, before reforms in the early 19th century, the curriculum at Oxford was notoriously narrow and impractical. Sir Spencer Walpole, a historian of contemporary Britain and a senior government official, did not attend university. Few medical men, he wrote, few solicitors, few persons intended for commerce or trade ever dreamed of passing through a university career. The education imparted at Oxford was not such as to condone as to conduce to the advancement in life of many persons except those intended for the ministry. Nevertheless, okay, gotcha. Walpole argued. <laughs> My brain was like, hmm. I know he's writing in that very, very Oxford so education. So basically, style. I mean, the education's great if you want to go into seminary or if you right. want to be a priest, but if you want anything else, it's not that But dark. he did say, like, and I could quote him at length, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Walpole did say, argued very passionately that, you know, what does happen in Oxford is that it puts a lot of diverse minds together that otherwise would never right. traffic together. Well, that, I guess and he's know. like, so a lot of interesting things came out of it, even though the education itself um, that they walked away with, the education was one that how, this is, Oxford allows these people an opportunity to educate themselves with the experiences of other people who they would never cross paths right. with otherwise. It's really um, interesting. Uh, so he was really kind of for it, even though he was like, yeah, it's kind of an old fashioned thing. Um, now, the university passed a statute in 1875 allowing examinations for women at roughly the undergraduate level. For a brief period in the early 1900s, this allowed these so-called steamboat ladies to study at Oxford while working towards a degree which came ultimately from the University of Dublin. The moniker steamboat right. ladies referred to the commute they had to make. Wow. Um, in June 1878, the Association for the Higher Education of Women, AEW, which I just want to say, aww, <laughs> was formed, uh, aiming for the eventual creation of a college for women in Oxford. Lady Margaret Hall was established in 1878. The non-denominational uh, Somerville College was founded in 1879. These institutions opened their doors to their 21 female students who had, 
heretofore been attending lectures organized for them above an Oxford bakery. 25 other female students lived at home or with friends in 1879, ultimately forming the group that would evolve into St. Anne's College. In the early 20th century, Oxford and Cambridge were widely seen as bastions of male privilege. However, the integration of women into Oxford moved forward during the First World War. In well, 1916, say, yeah, it's like like the different like it's like different types of people. It's like well, different types of white men. <laughs> right, 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 Let's, right. I mean, yeah, well, it's yeah. England. Um, <laughs> they were more different back then, but still. Perhaps. Um, in 1916, women Hashtag were admitted. not all white men. Sorry. It, so women were admitted as medical students in 1916. Um, and in 1917, the university accepted financial responsibility for uh, women's examinations. Ah. On the 7th of October, 1920, women became eligible for admissions uh, for admission as full members of the university and were given the right to take degrees. In 1927, the university's dons created a quota that limited the number of female students to a quarter of that of men, a ruling which was not abolished until 1957. It was not until 1959 that the women's college were given full collegiate status. Mm. The detective no novel Gaudy Night by Dorothy L. Sayers, one of the first women to earn an, acad an academic degree from Oxford, is largely set in the all-female college based on Somerville. The issue of women's education is central to the plot. Social historian and Somerville College alumni Jane Robinson's book uh, Blue Stockings, A Remarkable History of the First Women to Fight for an Education, gives a very detailed wow. and immersive account of the history. That is different than Silk Stockings. Yes. Which you would Manifestly. watch on uh, whatever. What was it? What was it on? <laughs> what network was it on? It was like, what is this silk stocking? Silk so sto what sexual. Are you, what are you talking about? Oh, my God. It was like a. What? It was like a, a soap opera, but like with a lot of sex. Are you, about the, are you talking about the Red Shoe Diaries? <laughs> no. I'm talking about silk stockings. I don't I'll remember silk stockings. Well, I wouldn't have. I, I, I wouldn't have watched. That wouldn't have been my cup of tea. Uh, well, I guess not. It sounds heteronormative. It really was. <laughs> it was it no, was, there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying it just wasn't my It's just not bag. your thing, and that's okay. I had to wait a little long. I had to go to special stores to get my kind of soap operas. Right. As I've said before, the university is a city university in that it doesn't have a main campus. Colleges, departments, accommodations, and other facilities are all scattered throughout the very, very old town. Iconic university buildings include the Radcliffe Camera, the Sheldonian Theater, used for music concerts, lectures, and university Haunted ceremonies. Is a Haunted science. Um, and the examination schools where examinations and some lectures take place. The University Church of St. Mary the Virgin was used for university ceremonies before the construction of the Sheldonian. Christ Church Cathedral uniquely serves as both the college chapel and a cathedral. So let's get to some of the ghosts let's that are to said them. to roam the halls, alleys, streets, Oxford. Um, <laughs> Town of. <laughs> to roam the places of Oxford. The first that we're going to mention is a rather famous ghost, the ghost of King Charles the first. Oh. And during the English Civil War, Oxford was home to King Charles I, a city where there was a royalist stronghold during much of the battle. With its strategic location and wealth from the colleges, it seemed an obvious place for him to reside. Whilst there, he turned the Christchurch College deanery into his palace and held sessions of counterparliament in its great hall. Counterparliament. 
right? <laughs> we must stave off. I mean, Oliver Cromwell was a dick, um, yeah. but still. After seven years of fighting between Charles's supporters and Oliver Cromwell's parliamentarians in the Civil War, Charles was eventually defeated and imprisoned in 1646 in Hampton Court Palace. When mm -hmm. he finally, when he was finally convicted of treason in 1649, he was given the death penalty and was executed outside the banqueting house in Whitehall. Oh. It is now believed that King Charles rests his spirit in the city he loved, Oxford, and more specifically at Christ Church College. However, there have also been noted sightings of him in the Bodleian Library. This is a rather fitting location as, whilst in Oxford, the king was denied leave to borrow books from the library in 1645. In an act of rebellion, people say he now torments the library, sometimes <laughs> with and sometimes without his head, and Ooh. has been seen running around the upper reading room at night, pulling books from the shelves, reading one line and placing them back in a never-ending game, which drives the students crazy. That's fun. Uh-huh. Uh... -huh. uh Another famous ghost from the same time period, Colonel Francis Windebank. Uh, W-I-N-D-E-B-A-N-K. Windebank. Windebank. It is believed that the library in Merton College is home to the ghost of Colonel Francis Windebank. 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 Winnebago. Uh, <laughs> a royalist executed in 1645 at the height of the English Civil War. And that's the other thing, too. Everything there is so old. It's all haunted. Of course it is. But it's kind of like, you know, I guess with your experience in Rome, it's like it's all so old that the ghosts are just kind of like, eh, we're tired now. Right. Just hang out. Um, we need new fresh ghosts. Right? To stir the, things up, change their ways. <laughs> I did try to end this with some personal accounts of people that are a little more recent oh. rather than just the legend. Okay. So we're kind of slowly we're getting it. picking our way through it. Um, Windebank was a young and newly married colonel in the Royalist Army who was appointed governor of Bletchingdon Park, Oxfordshire in 1645. In April of that year, he hosted a gala at his estate to help boost morale among fellow Royalists. Unbeknownst to him, a parliamentary spy in service to Cromwell managed to get himself on the guest list and enabled Cromwell's army to attack the estate. Oh. In a brave and noble gesture to protect the lives of his wife and his friends, as Cromwell's troops poured in, Windebank immediately surrendered. After his release, Windebank was marched to King Charles's headquarters in Oxford to answer for his surrender. His excuses were dismissed out of hand, and he quickly found himself court-martialed for failing to protect Bletchingdon Park from Cromwell. As punishment, oh, he was then tragically executed against the town wall, which is adjoined to Merton College, where his famous last words were said to have been, God save the king. It is now believed that Windebank haunts the site of his execution, known as Dead Man's Walk, and also the college library. Those who believe in his spirit believe he lingers due to the feelings of injustice at being executed the, the for what library? he considered to be an act of chivalry. Hmm? Mm, yeah, so like, so it was Charles that had him put to death yeah, for not defending. Was, for not, so, for but they're both supposed to be haunting the library. I know. So different library, though. Different. Oh, yeah, shit. Bodleian Library is the big one, and then the okay. library at Merton College. So different library. I just like the idea of. Like, I know right? they're both. Them moving going... books around to piss each other off, but it's really just <laughs> pissing off the library. <laughs> but that's okay. I'll allow it. In my book, maybe they're in, in my movie. They write little notes to each other, and the books that are loaned across the libraries. Yes, that's perfect. Uh, next ghost is William Laud. Uh, St. John's College is home to the long-distinguished ghost Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, who was a religious advisor to King Charles I during his residency in Oxford. Laud, who was born in Oxford and educated in St. John's College, spent much of his career devoting himself to imposing unity on the Church of England by implementing a series of reforms that persecuted and attacked the Protestant, uh, the Protestant practices of English Puritans. He's a big reason. Laud is a, a big part of why so many Puritans began 
jumping on ships and coming for the new world. Right. Because they're like, this, this fucker. Uh, in 1644, during the midst of the Civil War, William Laud was formally tried for popery, tyranny, and treason. Um, it smelled nice, but... <laughs> <laughs> if only it meant that. He smells too good. Witchcraft! Um, <laughs> He's a witch! <laughs> popery, I, it meant like, you know, he was tried for, I guess... Uh, um, having ties to the Pope, Italy. And so they were like, oh, whatever. Uh, Those charging him fought the case that Laud had been one of the key figures who was causing conflict between the monarchy and parliament, which eventually led to the English Civil War. On January 10th, 1645, Laud was taken to the Tower of London and beheaded. As they all were. Right. Doesn't make you special. <laughs> not, not, not with this crowd. No. Uh, Laud was later No one taken. has a head. How do you know if it's him that doesn't have a head or that guy that Does doesn't have a head? Do their heads ever get confused? They're like, Nobody oh, I'm wearing head. your head. Sorry. I right. thought I seemed nearsighted. There's <laughs> <laughs> just a game where they pass each other's heads around. <laughs> they bowl with it. Um, <laughs> Gotta Laud take your wig was, off first. Yeah, they're like, rock, paper, scissors. Oh, head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors, head sounds like a different game. It does. Uh, <laughs> you are not wrong. I don't like the word head and scissors being in the same sentence. It makes well, me want to cross my legs. Anyway, Laud was later taken back to his home city of Oxford and buried under the altar of the chapel at St. John's. Uh, students today believe they have seen him in the college's library where he has been known to pull his head from his neck <laughs> and kick it along the floor. What if it goes... When he does it. <laughs> I want confetti to come out Which of the Which library is this? Uh, that's the, it's the, it's St. John's, St. John's library. So the library. same one that... Different one. Different, it's different. So Merton Library is where uh, Windebank is. Uh-huh. Uh, Bodleian Library is where King Charles, Charles I okay. is. And then the, the, there's a lot of libraries. There are. And the yeah. St. John's Library is where the okay. Headless Guy. But all three, Headless Ghosts in a Library. Man. Kicking their heads. That's the only one that kicks his head, and I think that he wins. Uh, he does win. He's, he's my, my favorite He's my ghost. favorite. <laughs> he's kicking his head. He's, he's like, my favorite yeah. library ghost. He don't right give here. a fuck. Uh, <laughs> and I, want, I, want, I want there to be a champagne cork sound when he takes his head mm-hmm. off, and I want yeah. confetti to come out of the neck hole. Oh, yes. <laughs> With, like, a sound effect that's like, ah! Like, people cheering. Yeah. Okay. okay. Obadiah Walker the next guy. Obadiah Walker was an English academic and the Catholic master of University College. Well, that was probably a problem for him. 17th century. (laughs) (laughs) It was the 17th century, so things had kind of settled down (sighs) a little bit. Not really. Um, It is said that Walker tried to follow James II when he was exiled to France, but was captured and imprisoned en route. Despite being released for the last 10 years of his life, Obadiah left prison a broken man and is now believed uh, to haunt staircase Eight at University College, where his oh. residence used to be. A staircase? Mm-hmm. Bummer. Up, down, up, and down. And, and I guess he still has his head, too. Boring. Well, that's good um, <laughs> to look at all the stairs. <laughs> I love staircase eight. Um, <laughs> Why don't you one. try seven? I don't want seven eight. I want seven eight. It's near my old place. Um, are you at the old place? No, just It's staircase. just near it. I can't go well, in. Why, why not where you died? Uh, the staircase. <laughs> it seems like ghosts don't get much of a say where they go. It's true. like they just kind of go, mm. like I imagine some ghosts are really prestigious and so when they go to the afterlife, they're like, okay, you have, here's a whole palette of choices of places you could haunt where you spent some time and they go, oh, the library. Yeah, yeah can I do that? I'll, right. And I see them like bartering like with, with whatever like 
you know, white collar worker, you know, clerical worker is there to tell yeah. them like, hey, well, here's how this works. I know right. there's a lot of, there's a lot of ghostly red tape to yes, get through. Yes, that's true. He just And I imagine up. him going, okay, I'll take the college, but I want to be able to take my head off and kick it down yes. the hole. And I'm like, all right, all right. All right but, they, you, but you only can be in the college. You can't go anywhere else. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And this guy- Do I get like, to kick my head? All right, I'm fine This guy that. came so late to the game that they're like, we only have a staircase available. Right. Or, <laughs> or he came there and he was like, I want a library. I want to haunt this library. And they're like, that's such a great story. Here's your staircase. Here's your he staircase. He was just a real dick we to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, was, he, was, he was a Karen. Right. <laughs> he was some, I want to speak to your manager. Right. <laughs> you really don't. I promise you Yeah, our you manager will show up here. In the staircase. <laughs> Don't be a dick um, to your haunting assigner. This is now. This is an interesting one. This this following this next goes is kind of a mystery. Uh, Wadham Wadham College's priest. Uh, this there's little information on Wadham's college spirit. Those who have seen it believe the figure is male, draped in white robes, and thought to have once been the college priest. Bastard those who have seen right. Those who have seen him say that he walks from the chapel doors across the first quad and into the dining hall, where he then vanishes just in front of the high table. Ooh. Over the years, various members of the college have observed the ghost, in particular, the former head steward, uh, Mr. Maurice Hose, complained regularly about footsteps outside his office door in the dead of night. He said the footsteps would shuffle their way into the hall, but never leave. Classic. I Probably like it. the most tragic tale of an Oxford ghost is that of Rosamond the Fair. King Henry II was deeply in love with the nun who lived in Godstow Nunnery, which lies on the opposite bank of Trout Island. It was built in 1133 and was consecrated in 1179 by the Archbishop of Canterbury in the presence of King Henry II. It's said that the king kept his concubine in a secret garden that was protected by a labyrinth and guarded by one of his knights. The knight held the end of a silver thread which led to Rosamond. The queen was very jealous and killed the knight, stole the thread, and when she caught up with the Ro with Rosamond, killed her by making her drink from a poisoned chalice. This no. sounds very familiar. This no. sounds like maybe a lot of Alice in Wonderland possibly came <laughs> from this story. Uh, now Rosamond haunts the trout pub, uh, Wolver the trout pub Wolvercote. Uh, she is often seen as a shadowy figure sneaking around in the awnings. Now, um, I want to read this little article that came. It's a it's kind of, it revisits some of the things we've done with more firsthand accounts, right? Okay. And it comes from an article uh, in the Oxford Student written by someone named Owen Turner Major. And, uh, and it starts with, has your college made our list of cursed quads? <laughs> <laughs> and it goes great. as follows. It's 4.30 a.m. In a stupor of post-essay writing delirium, you plod through college to hand your work in at the lodge. It's quiet, too quiet. The darkness preys on the frail state of your overworked mind and tired eyes, and your thoughts begin to race. Is there someone standing in the shadows of that doorway? Why does that tree look so much like a face? Was that gargoyle really always there? You tell yourself to calm down. You tell yourself it's nothing. After all, ghosts aren't real. Are they? <laughs> Oxford's imposing stone architecture and rich history certainly makes it a natural hotspot for ghost sightings. The city boasts a dedicated ghost trail walking tour, as well as the UK's most seen ghost, known as Matilda, who allegedly haunts the steps of Oxford Castle. However, as you scurry back across the dark quad in the early hours, only one question matters. Is my college haunted? <laughs> <laughs> If it's on this list, then maybe you need to consider the possibility that the figure you thought you saw in your bedroom wasn't just your dressing gown, or that the moaning noise you heard was more than just fornicating freshers. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so Jesus College. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, two undergraduates talking at night in a room overlooking the first quad caught sight of their tutor, one Mr. Jenner, walking up and down by the chapel and decided to surprise him by going down and following behind him as he walked. They got a great shock when, instead of noticing their presence, their tutor continued walking until he reached the stone wall of the dining hall, which he proceeded to walk straight through, vanishing without a trace. Ugh. The two undergraduates were so unsettled by the event that one of them could not face the prospect of walking back to his room alone and had to sleep on his friend's sofa. Whilst one <laughs> I mean, might raise that. suspicions about the veracity of their account, one of the two was interviewed about the incident some years later and maintained that, quote, to this day, no rational explanation has ever occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Wadham College, back to Wadham. Perhaps the uh, reports of potentially drunk, potentially lying undergraduates seems too unreliable to be given serious credence. Why don't, uh, Wadham's ghost, however, has been observed over the years by no less than one head porter and two scouts. They agree that it takes the form of a white figure in robes, possibly a priest, and haunts the route from the chapel door across the first quad and into the hall, where it traverses the hall before vanishing just in front of the high table. This is, incidentally, the area of the college that was built over the site of an old Augustinian priory. Oh. Uh, there's also the testimony of Maurice Hose, one-time head steward, who complained on a regular basis of the footsteps that he heard late at night from his office, saying yeah. that they seem to enter the hall but not to leave. Watermites, keep your eyes peeled. You could be the next on this list of witnesses. Ooh. And now, if you are, please send us your message. New college. It's just called New College. New College. All right. Another another credible witness comes in the form of Dr. David Lumsden, who, as a fellow of music at New College and a prominent organist, should have felt more than comfortable in old and eerie buildings. However, one night in 1962, having cleared up after a late rehearsal in New College Chapel by himself, he had just turned off the lights when he turned to see a white face in the warden's stall, a mere five feet from where he was standing. Mm -hmm. The face appeared to be disembodied or floating, although Lumsden commented that this could have been due to the darkness in the chapel and that the apparition could have been wearing dark clothes. Needless to say, Dr. Lumsden took pains to avoid ever being left alone in the chapel after dark again. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Trinity College. Rumors concerning a supernatural presence in Trinity College Chapel have been in circulation for decades. They were given new life in 1966 when the chapel organist, having just finished the first hymn in a service held in honor of a newly built organ, collapsed dead on this Ooh. brand new instrument. The official uh, cause of death was said to be a heart attack, but naturally stories arose of a hostile spirit. The only spirit to have been sighted in the chapel, however, seems to at least have had the appearance of benevolence. This was seen by Trinity's verger when he, was when he unlocked the chapel doors at 10 in the morning. As he began to dust the pews, he became aware of a woman in the chapel with him, dressed all in black and looking at him. He recounted how, quote, we both stood still and I looked at her for about a minute and all the time she smiled. I started to move a pace or two nearer and looked down at the first step up to the pews, taking my eyes off her for a second. When I looked up, there was nothing but the empty chapel. Ugh. Also, it's kind of weird to just stare at someone for a minute. That's a long time. Especially if you're British. <laughs> right? <laughs> mm. uh, Magdalene. Magdalene's College. Magdalene's most haunted area is apparently the colonnade. This is where a dark, robed figure was observed coming across the grass and up the steps to the colonnade by two separate witnesses on different occasions. One observed the headless apparition emerging from the mist on an early morning while the other sighting was late at night. Both witnesses agreed on the figure's dark robes, its silent footfalls, and the route that it took, as well as reporting that it vanished suddenly and inexplicably in roughly the same spot near the entrance to the staircase 
near the entrance to staircase three on the colonnade. Colonnade, colonnade. Little of colonnade, little of colonnade. Um, <laughs> the level of corroboration between these two unconnected accounts makes this yet one more of the many Ooh. Oxford ghost stories that I'm sure will continue for another thousand years. Right. Oh my gosh. De -de Those are ghosts that ended up great. Pretty good, pretty good, yeah. pretty good, right? Yeah, right, you right? were worried. That was great. I was just worried because yours was so good and dramatic and mine is just British. <laughs> it was still good and dramatic. It was still good and dramatic. Wow. Oh, but yeah, Oxford, I think Oxford and Toronto, two universities, really, really good choices, I think, yeah. and our little spate of haunted I colleges. So what are we going to do next month? I don't know. What's our theme? Well, I don't know if we should do a theme. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that because it's going to be. It is hard to do a theme, right? It is. Yeah, we have uh, the, you know. Christmas is coming up, and right, we'll have right, our right, right, Victorian right. stories probably again yeah. of some something like that. Yeah. Um. So we've got to we've got to do all of that, but uh, you know, who knows? We I don't know. There's some things. Some, some I do like having I do like having a themed month. The we should we should do we should do another one at some point out there. Yeah. 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 I agree. Love to think. So agree. let us know if you have particular themes that you think we should do. Um, and just because we're done with colleges right now doesn't mean you can't keep sending in your college right. stories. Especially if you have stories about any of the colleges we've done. Mm -hmm. But if not, we'll take any of them. We'll take them. Yes. We'll take please, them. Give, please, us please, please. Give us your stories. Give us your stories. We love them. Uh, we love them so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this November of ghost stories. Yes. This weekend, uh, Michael and I will be in Dallas, which is where sure. we live. But there is a... <laughs> we don't live where we'll be. That's right. We're... Yeah, exactly. Um, we'll be at Anime Dallas, mm -hmm. which is located at a hotel at the airport. Yes. Interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll be there. I think we will probably have something to do with the podcast. Please watch yeah. the um, Twitter, mm. Instagram situation and we'll let you know. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. What yes. time that's going to be. But so we'll be much there fun. At least it. Saturday and Sunday. It was so much fun. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. so much fun. In Minneapolis. In Minneapolis. Yeah. I want to so do we've it got this time. one for sure. And I think we have another one. We have one set up next year in, oh, I don't know if they've been announced yet. But we have at oh, least, yeah, we should, yeah. I think, two more set up for next year. But we'll probably have more than that. Yeah, yeah. we're going to work on getting more. That's right. That's right. So, so hopefully we'll be coming to a convention near you. Um, you can always ask for it. That's true. That's true. And then say, we want the podcast. <laughs> so, we want the podcast. We want the podcast. We want the podcast. And then dance. Yeah. Um, and dance. Noises. Break it down. Uh, bitches what? <laughs> bitches what? Bitches what? Bitches what? Fucking addict. Fucking addict. Okay, so I'm going to get carried away. <laughs> Go Do submit your stories. Um, yes, yes. Couldn't be simpler. There's also links to the Twitter and the Instagram and the Facebook page, all there. All the social media. All the social media. There's also a link to our Patreon page. Yeah. We have our patrons. They will get uh, additional things. Additional it's things. all described there, so yes, just check yes. it out. Um, if you're Huge interested, thank please. you to those of you that already are contributing. Yes, please consider it if you haven't. Um, and then also, don't forget to leave us great reviews. Um, everybody's yes. been doing really good about that, so Ooh. if you wanted to throw us a five-star review, we'd really appreciate it. Um, thank you guys again for listening. You're amazing. We're so excited to continue this super fun thing. I can't believe it's been over a year. Oh my god. I know. High five. High five. Here, we can make the sound. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than the clink. It is. Uh, and remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.